We are in Acts chapter 9 this morning, the book of Acts chapter 9. Hey everybody, it's good to see you this morning. Before we open the word, before we talk, let's take a moment to seek the Lord. I know that uh, life moves pretty fast. I know we have a lot going on. We're all running, we're all doing things, and we're here at church. For those online, we just baptized two people upstairs, um, and it was incredible. It was incredible. Miss Deb and Miss Sid got, got baptized, and for that, we are grateful. If you're here and you wonder about baptism, I encourage you to talk to me or any of our deacons here, and we'll love to talk to you about what baptism is and what we do and how we do it. Right now, for a moment, let's go ahead and just be silent before the Lord and seek him. And let's go ahead and seek the Lord in a moment of silence. Father, thank you for the morning already. Down here in this room, it is, it's, it's warm. But we're not here because it's convenient. We're in a basement. We're here because some part of us knows you're real. And we want to draw near. We want to be close. We want to feel your presence move. So I ask, oh God, please move in this place. You've loosened up hearts through your worship. Bring that word, bring your word right to our soft hearts. We may know you and be changed by you. In Christ's name we ask all these things. Amen. When I was eight years old, I lived in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. My mom had gotten married, so we moved up to the UP. I lived on an old army base called like Kenchlow or Kenross near Rudyard. That was where I spent a few years of my life. And my stepfather decided I needed to go to church. So he sent me on that little bus that would come by the neighborhood. I got on this church bus, went to church. I remember going to church for the first time, and they put me in the Sunday school class in the basement. A basement very much like this. They had the divider walls. It was less nice than this, which hopefully paints a picture for you. Um, much smaller, too. Little country podunk church. I go to the Sunday school class, and the teacher asks, the teacher talks about hell. Hell is fire, and hell is bad. And I was like, oh, man, this sounds bad. And the teacher said, who wants to go to heaven? And I raised my little hand. I want to go to heaven. They said, okay, well, those of you raise your hand, go with Mrs. So-and-so to the back room, and she will help you go to heaven. So I went to the back room, and it was me and another kid, and we, she said, okay, let's bow our heads and repeat after me. And so I repeated after her. I repeated this prayer, she said. And she goes, okay, now you're going to go to heaven when you die. I'm like, okay, sweet. Well, I went back the next week, and they asked the same question. Who here wants to go to heaven when they die? I raised my hand again. Went down the same hallway to the same class with the same lady, said, bow your head, pray these words after me. I prayed all the words after her. I did this four times. I went there four weeks, prayed the prayer four times. I didn't understand the words. I didn't get the prayer. I just knew 
Hell is bad. Heaven sounds good. My hand went up every time. On the fourth week, my brother got in some uh, trouble with the pastor's kid. And as a big brother, I got to inter, 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 intervene in that conflict. And we were told to never come back to that church. So that, ended, that ended that church career. We moved back to Flint, Michigan. And I, my mom, my, my grandma wants us kids to be good Catholics. So we need to go to catechism and be confirmed, right? To receive our first communion. We went two weeks, my brother and I. And at the second week, my mom pulled up. And it was right at St. Mary's on Franklin, right on the east side, uh, right in between the old education wing that got tore down two years ago and the sanctuary. And we're in the alley waiting for my mom. So what happened? And we're just like, the nun kicked us out. And she wouldn't talk to the nun. She came out all sad. She's like, let's go home, boys. And, I mean, we got kicked out of the Baptist church and the Catholic church, me and my brother. Um, Well, then when I was 13, I moved to Waterford, Michigan. I got jumped after school. I gave my brother my backpack, my coat, said, go home, don't watch this. I took my beating. They left. I got up, went home. And I got home, my backpack was there, my coat was there, my brother wasn't there. I thought, oh no, he might have gone out to look for me. What if that gang finds him and beats him up too? So I'm looking for my brother, I'm walking around Waterford, and I'm walking through this field behind Prairie Middle School, and I pray to God. The God, I never prayed to this God, I'm like, God, if you keep my brother safe, I will believe in you. I made a deal, and we've all done that kind of, right? Maybe you're in court, God, if you give me up this ticket, I promise I'll never drink again. Like, we all make the deal with God. I made the deal. I'm like, Lord, if you take care of my brother, I'll believe in you. Well, my brother was safe, and I was like, ooh. And then finally, when I was 15, no, 14, I went with Ken Morgan to his church, and I walked into the, the youth room, and the, all the teens were singing a song. They were singing a song called Step by Step. And it goes, oh, God, you are my God. And I will ever praise you. I will seek you in the morning. I'll seek you in the morning. And I will, I will learn to follow your ways. And step by step you'll lead me. And I will follow you all of my days. I remember seeing these kids sing this song. And the song captured my attention. I'm like, I don't know what this is. But to quote John Wesley, my heart felt strangely warmed. So, Baptist, four-time praying, world champion. No, uh, Baptist, four-time praying. Ah, quarter through confirmation, deal with God in a field, heartstringly warm in the church at a youth group. At which point on, in that story did I become a Christian? It's a question I've wondered myself, like, when did it happen? And some of you might wonder that in your own story. When did I become a Jesus follower? To answer this question of when did I get saved, I go to Acts chapter 9 and look at one of the most famous conversion stories in the entire Bible. Beginning chapter 9 and verse 1. But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus 
that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Okay, Saul. We've met this guy. Saul is a Jewish man. And he loves his Jewishness. He loves the temple. He loves the high priest. He loves his religion. He loves his national identity as a Jewish man. Loves it. And Jesus comes along. And a lot of Jews are following Jesus. Because Jesus claims to be the seed of Abraham and the son of David. So all these Jews are following Jesus. And Saul's like, whoa. Jesus is not merely a denomination of Judaism. Jesus is doing a whole new thing. I mean, Jesus is going to... With Jesus, I don't need a temple, I don't need sacrifices, I don't need a priest. This is changing everything, and I don't want it to change. So Saul decides, I'm stopping this guy's movement. Single-handedly, I'm putting the brakes on the Jesus way. Now, I'm going to say something real quick here. Saul decides, I'm going to do this for God. For God, I am going to arrest women and men and women. Bring them to the high priest where they will be killed. I'll do this for God's glory. Before I move on, let me say this to us. If you're trying to do work for God in an ungodly way, you're not doing work for God. You understand? Throughout history, you have people doing things in the name of God, and they're doing horrible, heinous stuff. If you're doing something for God in an ungodly way, that ain't for him anymore. That's for you. So just so you know, we don't go ungodly to serve God. Fair? So Saul thinks, I'm going to serve God by being an evil man. He's not serving God. He's just, who knows what he's doing. But Saul goes to the high priest, and he asks to go to Damascus to arrest more people. So he's already shaken up Jerusalem. Now he's traveling 150 miles northeast to Damascus, into Syria. That's a pretty brilliant move by Saul. Saul realizes the movement spreading. So he's going to go to the edge of the movement and start forcing it. He's going to box it in. He's going to go to the edge of the movement and kind of push it back towards Jerusalem. He's going to try to box in the Christian movement. So he's going to Damascus, going to arrest the believers there and start making his way back towards Jerusalem, bringing all the Christians in chains behind him. That's his plan. And so what happens to him. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul has been on the road for two weeks, traveling. I'm not a salesman. I, I don't work far from home. He's, he's been not in his own bed for a long time. He's been walking two weeks solid. He's almost to Damascus. The city is there down in the valley. We're going to make it. And a light shines around him. And it's not merely like a break in the clouds, you know, where a beam comes down. Oh, this is like... Someone turned the lights on in the middle of the day and it just surrounds him and his party of travelers. 
So much so that Saul falls to the ground and bows his head because he knows something is happening here. This is, a, this is what's happening here is not natural. It is supernatural. Um, last week, I was watching Star Wars with the kids because I'm a big nerd, and uh, I turned the TV off because this episode ended. We're watching Star Wars cartoons. This is huge levels of nerdiness. We turn it off, and there's a tornado siren going off, right? You guys heard that happen last week, right? Like Tuesday, someday, I don't know, Monday? So we turn, Saturday, it was Saturday. Um, so we, last again, so we turn off the alarm, and we get the kids go downstairs, and we take cover for an hour, half an hour, because like there's a siren, and a siren means someone saw a tornado somewhere, we gotta take cover. Some of you guys went outside on your porches like, where is it? I mean, some of you guys, I got kids, I can't do that. I wanted to, but I said, be a good example of the kids. So I'm like, okay. Um, Saul didn't know much, but there's a light surrounding him, and he knows this is not natural. I'm getting on my face. He drops to the ground. Now, that's enough to shake a man. A light from the sky. Well, then a voice speaks into the emptiness of a field. There's a voice, a booming voice says, Saul, Saul. It knows his name. Imagine going into a haunted house and you're creeping around, all of a sudden you hear, Ernesto. Like that. I mean, the Holy Ghost leaves and I'm dead. I'm dead. A voice from the heaven speaks and it calls him by name, Saul, Saul, why are you hitting on me? Why are you punching me? Why are you attacking me? So all of a sudden, you're on the defensive like There's a voice from the sky. It knows my name, and it's mad at me. He's on his face. And his first question is, who are you, Lord? He's like, what did I do? Who did I attack? Are you an angel? Who did I make angry? I'm so sorry. What did I do? And the voice says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. What's crazy is Saul never met Christ. Saul didn't help kill Christ. Saul's like, how am I attacking Jesus? Here's the deal. Saul is attacking God's church. And apparently, when you go after Christ's church, you're picking a fight with Christ. Why are you attacking me? I am Jesus. And he says to him, is it hard to kick against the goads? I always loved that question. The King James says, it's King James English, I didn't, this is not me, I'm just saying what it says. It says, isn't it hard to kick against the pricks? I always thought, who's he kicking, you know? Um, but a goad, a goad is like a a piece of thin bamboo sharpened. You put it around like animal pens to keep animals from leaving or coming in. He's saying, isn't it hard to get, kick against the spikes? Or if you were from Arizona, isn't it hard to kick against the cacti? If you're from Texas, isn't it hard to kick against the gadillos? That's, that's Mexican. Um, what do we have in Michigan that's hard to, what do we have? Pickers? Isn't it hard to kick against the rose bushes? He's like, Saul... You're fighting me. Are you done yet? How, isn't it unpleasant to fight against me? Are you done? 
And he says, but, now at that moment, I think, if I, if I saw if I think, I'm going to die. Not only was I wrong, I was really wrong. Jesus is the man, I've been killing his people, I'm dead. But Christ has not come to kill Saul. And before I move on, we say this to us as well. There may be people in your life, there may be people in leadership, there may be political leaders, locally or federally, who you think are against your values. We still never resort to violence against people. We do not fight against flesh and blood. Why? Saul was an enemy of the church. But Jesus himself reached Saul and changed his life. We don't, our enemies are not politicians. We are praying for them that no matter how outspoken they may be, our prayer is, God, reach this person and bring them to yourself. We're not a people of the sword. We're people of prayer. Jesus can bring his most vicious enemies to himself. We don't need to defend God. He does okay on his own. Fair? God, doesn't, God wasn't like, man, we're not going to be born so we can defend my honor. He's not waiting for me or you. He's got it. So don't... Yeah, there. Saul gets saved. So, it says, Saul, rise, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So Saul has eyewitnesses. Saul's going to tell this story to his whole life, and he can go, man, you sneaking ass, Zechariah, he, he was there, he heard it. Light heaven, people speaking from the... There's eyewitnesses of this account. So Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So Saul gets up off the ground and he is blind. He cannot see. And Jesus told him, go to the city and wait for me. And Saul goes to the city and he waits for Jesus. In this moment, we have one of the most powerful conversion stories in the whole Bible. Saul's going 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction, and he crashes headfirst into the God of heaven, and it stops him on a dime. God's like, Saul. And Saul stops like, yes, Lord. And you're going to watch Saul, a man who was hell-bent on death and malice, on the way into Damascus, he wanted to burn down Christ's church. When he leaves Damascus again, he will leave there to build Christ's church. Who can change a man's heart like this? Only the God of heaven, only his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ can change people's hearts in an instant. He can grab a hold of someone and go, no more, and go, oh, I'm a different person. It happened. That happens. That happened, and it does happen. Saul will get a new name, Paul. And Paul will become the greatest church planter the world's ever seen. 
it's because of Paul that most of you heard the name of Jesus. Because Paul went up into Europe, and a lot of you guys are European, right? A lot of you guys are like German or Swiss or whatever you got, the, the white blood stuff. But Jesus went to Europe, or, or Paul went to Europe, and brought the gospel there. That's awesome. He literally was the, the, the um, apostle to the Gentiles, to the pagans, to our forefathers and foremothers. That's who Paul is. Because God grabbed him on the road to Damascus. Now I say a few things about this. First thing I want to say about this is this. For some people, conversion is a lightning bolt. For some people, conversion is a lightning bolt. For Saul, it was like, but ow, I'm Paul. It was that, it was that dramatic, that sudden. And that happens. That happens. There's a story of a guy named Louis Zamperini. They made a movie about this guy. The movie was called Unbroken. Pretty good movie. Uh, uh, Louis Zamperini was an Olympian, won gold medal at the Olympics, came home for the Olympics as a, as a famous runner, joined the military to go to fight Japan, World War II, ended up in the Pacific Theater where he was a pilot, gets shot down, goes in the ocean, survives like... 27 days in the ocean, just the salt, and the, I mean, just survives alone. The Japanese find him, and he ends up in a Japanese concentration camp where he is tortured and brutalized for years, and he survives. And the movie ends there. The movie is the Olympics. It's the, in the, in, like, on the ocean for 27 days. Then it's him in the Japanese concentration camp, and he gets freed, and the movie ends like... He made it. But the book doesn't end there. In the book, Louis Zamperini, American hero, goes home. He's celebrated. There's a parade in his honor. He talks shows, the whole thing. Radio interviews. Gets married to a beautiful model in, in New York. They move to L.A. And he becomes a drunk. Because all the pain of what he saw, all the trauma, he didn't know how to deal with this. We just started drinking it away running around on his wife, vicious to her, just burning his whole world down. His wife was like, I'm leaving you because you're destructive to everyone around you. On the day before she said she was leaving him, she went off, she left the house, and at that moment in history, Billy Graham was having his first crusade in Los Angeles. The Los Angeles crusade is what made Billy Graham Billy Graham. God bless that moment, and thousands get saved in L.A. He's there for months in that tent every single night preaching. I can't even imagine. You read his life story, he's like, there's some nights he had to be like held up to the microphone because he was so exhausted of just preaching every night. The wife comes home, and she met Jesus. She's like, Louis, I'm not going to leave you, but you better yeah, come with me to hear Billy Graham preach. He's like, Psh. Religion, bush. The tough dude, he's Louis Zamperini, Olympic boat survivor, Japanese country camp survivor. I don't need Jesus. The wife says, I won't leave you if you come. So he's like, okay, fine, I'll go. She's like, I want three nights. He's like, I'll give you three nights. He goes the first night. Billy preaches at the end of the service, invites people to come down, the altar call, right? The altar call back in the day. 
And Louis gets up, walks, and walks out the back door. He's like, I ain't going down. I don't need this fool. And night number two, off the call, walks out, walks to the back door. And he does it just to show Billy, I don't need you. Very dramatic, Louis was. On the third night, Billy preached on John chapter 4. No, John chapter 3, you must be born again. And Louis said he got up, he walked, and his intention was to walk down so Billy could see his back one last time. But he got to the aisle, and he walked the other way. And he walked down the altar, got on his knees, broke down weeping, called him to the Lord, and he never drank another drop. It happens. Lightning bolt. Blood out. Louis up when he goes home. Him and his wife end up being married until they both, until they both pass away. He becomes a counselor for young men in addiction. All over America, the Midwest, he just worked to help young men overcome their demons, the same demons he had as a young man. That happened. Some people, it's a lightning bolt for some. It was for, it was for Paul, it was for Lupus Eberini, and it might have been for you. That does happen. God can grab a sinner and breathe them new life, and they are a new creature that fast. That does happen. We've heard, those testimonies are beautiful and they're encouraging and they're good, right? But here's where I want to go somewhere a little different. The Saul story is not the only story. In the, in the church I grew up in, that was the only story told. So if you didn't have a lightning bolt story, you felt like maybe I'm not a real Christian. Or I'm not as cool as that Christian. What about all the second generation Christians? Well, what's that? What's a second generation Christian? I'll tell you what they are. I was raised in the world. I, was, I, I, was a, I, I loved sin. I performed sin. I ran the streets where I wanted in the city of Flint. And I found in that chasing of sin all of it to be empty, I turned from it to Christ. For some people, though, my kids, for example, they're raised in a Christian home. My kids, every day of their life, we join hands in prayer for dinner, every day. Every night, my hand on my kids, and I pray God's protection over their lives. They have never known a moment of life where the praise of God was not spoken over them. They've never known it. If I have life and breath, they never will. They've grown up under the faith of their mother and father, believing there's something more to this life. Now, I know it's their parents' faith, okay? And someday for every child, a child must take their parents' faith and make it their own. That's a hard road. And for parents, just so you know, a lot of kids, not, some kids have to push it away for a season and then come back to it. Because it's, 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 it's just, if you, when you're raising your kids, just know they might leave the faith you give them. But we have a lot of data that the kids that we love and, and pour life into, a lot of them come back home. A lot of us needed to, to wander, be stupid. Maybe your kids might need that same freedom. When they're adults, not when they're kids. Here's an aside about this whole thing of raising kids in the Lord. 
I was at Wheaton College for class, and we're reading these articles written by some um, thinkers. And these thinkers were saying things like, you shouldn't tell your kids about your faith, about Jesus, because that's not fair, they're too young, they don't understand, it's brainwashing. I've heard good Christians tell me, I don't want to force my faith upon my children. Let me say this. You know what parenting is? Parenting is not, it's way more than keeping the kids alive. It's more than food and shelter. Parenting is giving to our children the best we got. I'm going to tell you what I've learned. I'm going to show you how to walk in this world. It could be as dumb as how to change a tire. Son, I know this trick. you got to start here and do the star. <laughs> Whatever you teach a kid, you teach them how to be a person. If your kids don't know how to cook, that's not their fault. That's your fault. You didn't train them up in that way. If your kids don't know how to work, that's not their fault. That's your fault because you didn't teach them how to work. <laughs> Ooh, that's, that's brutal, but I'm saying we tell our kids how to be people. we got to give them the valuable things. And guess what? The most valuable thing i got in the world is Jesus. And I'm giving that to my kids without apology. We're allowed as people to give to our children our faith. And listen, it does change. When they're little, I tell them this is true. When they're older, I say, we believe this, believe this but others disagree. As they grow older, you teach them how to think, not just what to think. You give them all the information they can grow up and learn how to engage with other data. But we as believers should never apologize for giving our faith to our children. In the class, it was the last day of class. It was a Friday. Every, I'm going to Wheaton College. It's fancy pants McGee over there, okay? A bunch of theologians and smart people. And I, they, they make it like in small groups to discuss this article we read. And there's like a, some law trying to get passed if you can't teach your kids your faith in your home. And I was so tired. I, I think I said something like, I'm like, so what would you do if they passed this law? And I, I look, and I'm, I'm always trying to be polite and nice. And I'm like, listen, if someone tells me I can tell my kids about Jesus, they kiss my butt. And my group just went quiet. And I was like, all right then, I'm a Wheaton. <laughs> Let's be more civilized. But, okay. But our kids, my, my wife, for example, she called upon the name of the Lord when she was six years old, four years old. And she never ran away from him. Her life, a lot of testimonies we hear are I was a drug dealing pimp and now I'm a Christian. And it's, it's very dramatic. That testimony is beautiful, but so is the testimony I met Christ when I was four, and he's been holding me in his loving hand my entire life. That is also a beautiful story. If we say only lightning bolt counts, we discount a bunch of people's experience. Think about Peter. Peter's with Christ for three years, never getting it right. And one moment, he's, Jesus is telling him, man, you're a good prayer. Next moment, he's telling him, get behind me, Satan. Like, I mean, it's just Peter, at the end of the story, or at the end of, like, at the, end of the, the Passion Week, 
Peter denies his Savior three times and runs away in shame. For some of us, some people, conversion is a process of walking around Jesus and near his people, being exposed to it. Like For many of us, we have not one person, but many people who God brought into our lives for a season to help lead us to the Lord. In my own life, the Baptist church, the Catholic church, the deal with God in the field, the Rich Mullins song in the youth group, all, God used all those things, bring me a step closer to him day by day and year by year. Some of you know the day you got saved, and that's awesome. That's beautiful. Some of you in your Bible like, June 14, 1984, baby, Christian. I don't got that. I don't know when it happened. I don't know when I became a Christian. I was around his people. I was around the truth. And one day it was like, this is all true. And I'm with him. Thanks be to God. I believe in the Son. For some people, it's a process. Uh, there's a kid I met at a camp. He's, a, he's an atheist kid, doesn't believe in God at all. And during my message at the camp, he came to camp because a buddy invited him, and he was bored, so he came. He's like a high school grad. He's graduating from high school this year. Doesn't believe in God, but loved the activities at camp, you know, loved the go-karting, all that stuff. I was preaching about how Jesus takes our sins upon himself, and this young man thought in his mind, well, if everyone else throws their sins upon Jesus, I'll just hold on to my own sins because I don't want to bother Jesus. Everyone else is bothering him. And he heard a voice in his heart say, you can give me your sin too. He waited for me. Everyone else left. He waited for me. So I talked to him. And he's like, I heard this voice in my mind. What? I don't know what this is. I'm like, listen. I could have been like, let's pray right now, man. Get saved. I could have done that. I could tell, though, he wasn't ready. I'm like, let's take a step towards Jesus. You heard God speak to you. Let's start reading Matthew together and just see what Jesus says, who he is. Because Jesus, Jesus is beginning to draw that young man to himself. And I don't know when... It'll become fully real. But he's on the path, you understand? He's on the road. It's a beautiful road to be on. Hebrews says it this way. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, not 11.1. 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Listen, God speaks in many ways. He has throughout history, and he still does. Let me give example of how God speaks. For academics, God often speaks to them through the dead, through dead thinkers. C.S. Lewis, the famous Oxford uh, theologian, wanted to write a paper. He wanted, a, he wanted his life's work to be debunking Christianity finally and fully. He gave his full mental, mental acuity to disprove the gospel. And as he dug and he read and he searched through the ancient documents, he, he quoted, he said, I would have had to commit intellectual suicide not to believe. Many, I hear many academics go to disprove Christ and they find him. For Hindus, in India, I talk to Hindus, like, how did you meet Jesus? And most 
first-generation Hindus I meet come to Christ through healing. They'll say, you know what? My kid was sick. The Hindu priest couldn't help. I went to a Christian pastor. They prayed for my kid. My kid was healed, and now my family follows Christ. I heard that story dozens of times in India. For the Muslim faith, I've heard at least a handful of times, first-generation Muslim believers, how did you, you're Muslim. How did you come to meet Jesus? They'll say, I had a dream. And Jesus came to me in my dream and told me that he was the Messiah. And now my family follows Yeshua. In many ways, Christ is pulling people to himself. The point is this. It's not so important the how, but to whom. If you got saved like Paul, praise the Lord. If it was a lightning bolt and the Lord was like, you know, Joseph, whoa, it could have been you, that's awesome. But in my personal journey, it was a little of both. It was kind of a process and a lightning bolt and a little more process, you know? I don't know when it happened for real, but I know I'm his. I've heard preachers say, if you don't know the day, you're not really a believer. That's helping nobody. You don't got to know the day. For some people, it's a lightning bolt. For some, it's a conversion. The main thing is, are you following after Jesus? Do you love the Christ? I meet second-generation Christians sometimes, second-generation Christians, and I'll ask them, when did you meet Jesus? And they'll say to me, I've always known him. That's an okay answer. My kids might say someday, he was always in my house. I've always talked to him. I've, my daughter's been reading his words since she was four years old. My daughter, I put her to bed. We put her to bed. She was reading when she was real little. We put her to bed. She always turned her light on. I'd hear the little click, click. I'm like, stinking girl, stayed up late. So I thought, I gotta, I, gotta, I gotta deal with disobedience and tell her, lights off, go to bed. So I tell her next morning, I'm like, Lena, I hear you up late during reading. You can't be reading at night. You gotta go to bed. She goes, Well, Dad, I'm just reading my Bible. And I was like, I mean, I, <laughs> I guess have fun staying awake. Well, you can't argue with that. I'm, I'm praying, Daddy. Well, it's okay then. <laughs> and that's what, that story's good too. So if, you, if you're here and you, you've thought for yourself, my testimony isn't very dramatic or beautiful, listen. Yes, it is. If God's been faithful to you, that's a beautiful story. I hope my kids someday say, I've been with Jesus since I was six years old, and he never left me. If you have kids, and they're in the wilderness right now, you don't stop praying for them. Those things you gave them, you just got to pray, Lord, the seeds we planted, may they bring the kids back home. I have no... What's the word? Disillusions that one or both of my kids might walk away for a season. And listen, what they do, I will cry and I will pray in private. And not in front of them, that'd be weird. Every Christmas, oh, I wish you loved Jesus. Oh, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be like, what's up? Good to see you, bud. Some people come through lightning bolts. Some people come through a process. The more important thing is not the how, but the who. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? 
And if you don't, you've got to start walking towards him. He speaks to us through his word. Read it. We speak to him through prayer. Get on your face and talk to him. And we learn to follow him in the community of the church. Commit to a body. Stop dating and marry a church. There's got to be this one, but marry some, like commit to it and be a part of a community. We all need this. So, let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word that is true. Thank you so much for just calling sinners to yourself. You can call the most wicked men and women to yourself. The most broken, the most lost, the most angry. You can break through our hard hearts and you can wash away the shame, heal the trauma. You can make us new. Let us as a people draw close to you day by day. Let us seek you that we may find you. Let us knock that the door may be answered. Let us ask that you may answer. Let us celebrate the many different walks in this room, the lightning bolts and the processes. Thank you for the baptism this morning, for Miss Sid, Miss Deb, and for their obedience. We love you, Jesus, very much. In Christ's name we ask all these things. Amen.